This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The big issue going forward is going to be about election laws in 2024. And I'm really glad that um, we have an originalist court because on originalist grounds, I actually think we liberals have a good chance of winning on some of the most important election law issues that are going to be actually decide the 2024 election. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. Since the draft of the Dobbs decision overruling Roe leaked back in May, there have been a ton of questions about how the court could have reached the opinion it did and what it could mean for other landmark Supreme Court decisions. I'm joined today by Akhil Ridamar. Akhil is Sterling Professor of Law and Political Science at Yale University, where he teaches constitutional law at both Yale College and Yale Law School. He's also a graduate of Yale Law School and has received awards from the American Bar Association and the Federalist Society. Akhil has been cited by Supreme Court justices in over 45 cases, including the Dobbs decision, more than any other scholar under 65. He appears frequently as a legal commentator on cable news shows and has been published in The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, and Time Magazine. He is also the author of The Words That Made Us, America's Constitutional Conversation, 1760 to 1840. Professor, thank you for making the time to have this conversation, and welcome to Politicology. It's an honor to be here. Uh, Thanks for having me. Let's turn to a couple of the other uh, opinions, the the, the concurrences, then, Um, because it was one by Justice Clarence Thomas, the other by Brett Kavanaugh, uh, and then uh, John Roberts, Chief Justice, filed an opinion concurring in judgment. So can we walk through those just briefly one by one, and can you explain what is significant about them? Um, And maybe we start with, why don't we do Thomas last, because there's a follow-up thread that I'd like to pick up after after we talk about Thomas. So why don't you start with Kavanaugh? He is the absolute middle of the court. If you're weighing him left to right, there are nine. So the pivot is the fifth vote. Whichever way the fifth vote goes, that wins. If they're four to your left and four to your right, he's the pivot because he's part of the majority. It's five, but he's the only one who actually softens his, um, uh, the, the, the majority by emphasizing number one, this doesn't imperil all sorts of other rights as, you know, um, um, because like um, same-sex marriage, um, sodomy, um, interracial marriage, contraception. Why? First, because some of those are express rights in the Constitution, like equality, um, race equality. If, if a white person can marry, let's say Mary is um, a white person. If, if a, a white guy can marry Mary, why can't a black person marry Mary? You see, that's just race um, uh, a discrimination that violates Brown versus the Board of Education. You don't need to appeal to unenumerated rights for race uh, uh, equality in marriage. How about sex equality in marriage? Um, Well, if Patrick can marry Mary, but Patricia can't, that's actually sex discrimination between Patrick and Patricia. And if straights can um, marry, why can't gays? And if you're born um, gay, you see that's birth... um, uh, uh, discrimination, sort of um, a birth equality discrimination. So, so Obergefell 
um, is, I think, um, solid. And, and Kavanaugh, who clerked for Kennedy, is reaffirming Obergefell and reaffirming Loving versus Virginia, which is interracial marriage, and sodomy cases, which are about privacy and there's no one else involved. And so he goes out of his way, first of all, to say, the majority says this is only about abortion. I write to um, um, emphasize that. And critics say, well, we can't trust you for anything. And I say, well, if you can't, you know, they're, they're giving you what they actually say. Um, and, and they say, oh, but that doesn't follow from the logic of the opinion because the logic of the opinion is 1868. And I say, no, the opinion actually isn't just about 1868. It's about state counting. And contraception is absolutely rock solid because states aren't going to try to, in general, um, um, and now, there may be some little wrinkles in one or two states about the IUD because it's claimed to be abortifacient in certain ways because it's, it's post-conception and pre-implantation or something. But all sorts of other things, condoms, sponges, pills, cervical caps, um, um, implants, and, and the rest. And, and I don't see even lots of states, frankly, trying to go against the IUD. Um, and it would have to be a bunch of states uh, in order to actually, um, for, for Griswold to be imperiled because of the counting um, outlier analysis that we, that we talked about before. So Kavanaugh has reasons for saying that's what's, you know, none of those things are really um, at, at issue because they're either express constitutional rights like equality or on an unenumerated rights analysis, they're rights that actually are um, where there's a strong consensus, where the only states that are threatening them are now or are likely to be a weird um, outlier states. That's Kavanaugh with one other thing that he emphasizes very importantly, right to travel. He goes out of his way to say one of the things that makes the Mississippi law okay is that Mississippi isn't trying to prevent you from uh, traveling to another state. And he goes even further. And if they did, he just says that would be unconstitutional. And he does say that might be. So, so he is softening the possible harshness of um, uh, the opinion that, that he joins, he is in the middle of the court. Now, you might think the middle of the court is way too far right if you're a liberal um, a, 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 as I am. You, you, you're you allowed to think that, right. but he is still the middle of the court, which, by the way, is what some of us um, predicted when he, he went on. Now, to his left is John Roberts, who didn't join the five justice uh, Dobbs majority opinion, he was willing, unlike the liberals, to uphold the Mississippi law, uh, but he did so just on a theory that 15 weeks gave women enough time to make up their mind, um, and, and, you, and you don't need to go any further than that. You don't need to decide to toss Roe out altogether. You don't need to decide, in effect, that Texas is okay at six weeks um, or um, some other state's okay at, at, at two weeks or something. He says, let's not decide that today. Um, but he he uh, spoke only for himself. He couldn't get any of the liberals to join him uh, or um, Kavanaugh to join him on the other side. Um, before the Dobbs opinion came down, I have a podcast in which I said, here's a possible alternative, but the liberals are going to have to give up a lot. They're going to have to be willing to say, the Mississippi law is okay. We uphold it because 15 weeks still is enough time to make up your mind, and you can um, travel out of state, and you can be um, GoFundMe'd. You know, you could be funded. Okay, and if they had said we'll uphold the Mississippi law, but only on a narrow ground that 15 weeks is a lot of time, and you can always 
after 15 weeks, go somewhere else. Only 4% of abortions occur after 15 weeks. So it's a small number of abortions, and 80% of abortions are occurring in other states. So you can travel to, to them. So now it's, you know, um, it's um, only one-fifth of the states and only 5% of abortions, so it's a small number. And um, uh, people can travel, and they can be subsidized by their employers or by other states or by charities. If they had done that... Um, and said, we're willing to uphold the Mississippi law to cut back, in effect, on Roe, and we don't need to decide anything more than that. And, and Roberts um, had been willing to join them on that. Oh, then there might have been a lot more pressure on Kavanaugh to join the moderate you know, um, block rather than um, the, 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 the more a, a extreme block. It would have been 9-0 in result. The Mississippi law is constitutional, but you could have imagined five saying it's uh, um, uh, okay only for um, because it's actually truthfully a more moderate law um, when you actually look at all the states to its right. Um, um, but but um, and there would have been more pressure on Kavanaugh, you know. But only had the liberals joined with Roberts and given him more leverage. They didn't give him any leverage, so he stood alone. Um, if they had given him more leverage, there would have been more pressure on Kavanaugh to join the moderate bloc. Um, so that's Roberts. That's Kavanaugh. We so already Kavanaugh talked about the Kavanaugh is now the swings, the, the swing vote of the court. Yes. Let's look at Thomas now. So he says he wants the court to revisit substantive due process, quote unquote, as you, as you've talked about it, right. which is he also calls it an oxymoron. Uh, anywhere it has been used, including Obergefell, which guaranteed marriage equality, Griswold, which, as you mentioned, guaranteed birth control, and Lawrence, which overturned anti-sodomy laws. Can you uh, just explain what is he talking about when he says, really, substantive due process is not a thing, and we should revisit anywhere the court has said it is a thing? And most importantly, I think, to listeners right now, how concerned should we be about those decisions? And I know you've I know you've run through already. I think most of them are not a um, they're not at they're not at risk right now. Um, but can we can you give folks a little bit more reassurance uh, about that? Does that make sense? A lot of folks are are really fr very worried about this Tom's concurrence. Um, I am less worried, um, and I could be wrong, but here's why I'm less worried. First, because he spoke only for himself. Um, and I just don't see him um, getting um, for others on some of this stuff. Um, because the majority explicitly says that um, this won't go any uh, further, it's beyond abortion. And you might say, yeah, but they didn't give reasons why. And I say, no, they did. They gave an outlier analysis. They cited Glucksburg. They talked about Griswold being an outlier statute. They told you why Griswold is rock solid, because they do a, are doing a state counting analysis. So when you apply the analysis that they put forth, Griswold is safe. And you say, okay, Griswold, yes. Okay, Lawrence uh, excuse me, loving, yes, interracial marriage, that's pretty sort of rock solid just in, if you look at the actual numbers. Um, um, and maybe actually states, um, in fact, aren't enforcing sodomy laws, so maybe that, but what about same-sex marriage? And I say, remember, that's a different analysis because it's an explicit constitutional right, the right of um, um, equality, which is not just an unenumerated right. There isn't an unenumerated right to marry across the board, that's true. Why do I say that? Because three people can't marry. You can't have polyandry. 
or, uh, um, or uh, polygamy, um, or you know, um, uh, just um, uh, polyamory more generally, Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. So um, um, there, there are rules about a, adult um, incest marriages and, and, and the rest. So there's not just a right of, of marriage across the board. There is a right of interracial marriage, loving, because of equality um, and counting a state consensus. Um, um, and we could talk about Ginny and Clarence Thomas or Kamala Harris and her spouse or Katanji Brown G. Jackson and her spouse. If we just talk about how prominent interracial marriage is in America today, I've just given you three pretty prominent interracial couples and I'm not even mentioning Barack Obama's parents. Oh, I just did. Okay. So, um, uh, and, and those are pretty high profile and no state's <laughs> trying to prohibit that. And every year there are more people, you know, um, get married across um, uh, uh, racial lines. And it's great. On, on my wedding um, certificate. Uh, we've been married for over thirty years. I, um, they, uh, on the wedding license, they actually had um, a line. It said um, we were supposed to put in race, and I didn't quite know what to put in, so I just put in human. Um, but that's how we think about marriage today. You see, okay. Um, yeah. So I think Obergefell. So Lawrence is safe, Griswold is safe, and um, Loving is safe. What about Obergefell? I told you, that's about sex equality and sexual orientation equality, not just unenumerated rights. Okay, so um, analytically, I, I think these things are, are, are safe. Clarence Thomas, I don't think, has you know, a lot of other takers for, for what he wrote. And, but I also think what he said is more narrow. What he said is he hates substantive due process on originalist grounds. It, um, it is Lochner, and before that it is Dred Scott, and he thinks that these were repudiated by um, the framers of the 14th Amendment. But I don't think he is necessarily hostile to the idea of unenumerated rights. He just thinks if you're going to do it, you have to do it using the right clause, namely the Privileges or Immunities Clause, which I mentioned before. Um, and so... Um, his opinion is um, very exquisitely professorial. It's, it's very theoretical and academic. It's saying, let's get rid of substantive due process, but in the process, we're also going to have to think about privileges or immunities. Now, you can say, but he's not promising that he's going to reinstate all these other um, uh, holdings that he's threatening to um, vote against on the basis of this alternative rationale. You say, yeah. So he's not promising that, and, and uh, uh, but... Um, and he's only one justice, and I think actually he does. When he looks at the evidence, he will in the end um, agree with me that privileges or immunities are a proper foundation for all these things. Why do I say that? Because I think the originalist evidence is very strong for that, and he's an originalist. Second, and finally, because he himself, in two landmark gun cases, um, a case called City of Chicago versus McDonald and Bruner. Um, basically said, everyone else is talking about substantive due process as a way of talking about guns. I, Clarence Thomas, believe it's privileges or immunities. And in uh, a City of Chicago versus McDonald, that was a concurring opinion. In Bruner, he writes for the court. It's his most important decision ever. It's the same week as Dobbs. And he is relying on um, other language, basically, of the 14th Amendment to protect a substantive right against states in that case, a gun right. Now, um, so everyone else on the court, and he says this, well, they call it substantive due process, but actually I think it's privileges or immunities since it doesn't matter in this case, potato, potato, um, either way um, we protect it. 
Now, he does say, you could say, oh, he does that for enumerated rights, and the Second Amendment is enumerated. Is he willing to do the same thing for unenumerated rights? And that is the question. But since for enumerated rights, he actually just thinks, um, use a different clause, I think, actually, if push comes to shove, at the end of the day, he'll think the same thing for unenumerated rights. I could be wrong, but even if I'm wrong, I'm wrong about one person, Clarence Thomas. I say one final thing. In his confirmation hearings, he, he went out of his way to say that he believed in the rightness of Griswold versus Connecticut marital privacy. And early in his life, you know, he was very into natural rights and, and unenumerated rights. Um, now, he's an intellectual. He's a reader. He's allowed to change his mind. Heck, I've changed my mind on a whole bunch of things as I've done more research. He's a work in progress. Um, he's a, um, so it's possible um, uh, that that he, he um, w- will end up you know, basically calling for the overruling of Griswold. I, I, you know, I have to admit that's possible, and I didn't quite predict that um, before the Dobbs opinion came down. But truthfully, almost everything else in Dobbs, I kind of predicted. I was hoping the liberals wouldn't pull a precedent, 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 liberty, 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 um, privacy, 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 substantive due process, substantive due process, substantive due process, um, uh, opinion, but but that's what they ended up uh, uh, doing. I wish they had talked much more about equality, 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 and not just equality, but the equal protection clause and the Thirteenth Amendment, and grounding it much more emphatically in constitutional text and history. The equal protection. That's my clause. view, and it would have been a much stronger dissent. They could argue that tomorrow, and the day after that, and the day after that, having argued precedent, the precedent's now against them, and they <clears throat> don't have a place to stand. So this makes so much sense to me. Uh, the the originalist lens makes so much sense to me, and I want to I want to change gears a little bit and focus a little bit more on on that and and criticisms of originalism and you know people blaming the Federalist Society for this outcome. Um, and every liberal I know is currently decrying originalism as a weapon used by conservatives only when it is convenient for their arguments and tossed aside when it's not. And what I often ask them. And I never, uh, up until now, I still I have not received a clear answer on, is what equally principled constitutional theory liberals believe should be used to decide cases. And the closest I've heard is the the living constitution theory, right? That the constitution was written for a different time and it has to evolve. But that doesn't seem to me to provide a rigorous framework as much as it is a preference for jurisprudence to more closely follow public opinion and culture as a guide. So this you touch on this in your Time Magazine piece, which we'll link to, which I think is excellent. So what am I missing in terms of the way liberals approach jurisprudence and and and, and how could or, or should it be different? Uh, feel free to take that wherever you think is appropriate. But I, I really struggle with the critiques uh, without the without a an alternative that I've heard to originalism. Oh, I think you're onto something. So here's one concern that you had. It's a little loosey-goosey. Um, here's a related point. Do you really want to advocate looseyness, goosiness when there are six um, movement conservatives on the Supreme Court? This does not seem to be a propitious time to be able to say, hey, do whatever the heck you like. Because um, living an evolution, oh, it can evolve up maybe, but it can also evolve down. It can evolve away from the core rights 
that really were in the Constitution and textualized and that they don't want to be abandoned, like racial equality, um, for, for example, or freedom of speech. Um, so Hugo Black was emphatic. He says, damn it, it says certain things and we're going to enforce them whether they're popular or not. Um, because, oh, there, there are lots of things that are unpopular today. If we look at polls and we say, well, people like abortion rights today, yet people also like Donald Trump today over Joe Biden, and that scares the hell out of me. Um, so um, we put things in the Constitution in part so that they would be secure from um, the gusts of faction and um, just so I'm, I'm building on your point that living isn't an evolution, aren't always necessarily in the direction that you would want. Um, and Hugo Black um, says, um, 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 <clears throat> and Hugo Black says, if it's in the Constitution, we absolutely protect it. Now, I have a one-way ratchet. I say if it's in the Constitution, it's a right, we protect it. If it's not in the Constitution, we still might protect it if actually American consensus has, has um, evolved upwards, you, you see. So, so um, heads I win, tails let's, let's play again. Um, if it's in the Constitution, we protect the right. If it's not, we see if it's protected by modern tradition. But only when it comes to rights, not other things, um, and um, only if it adds to existing rights rather than takes away from them. So that's a little bit of living constitutionalism, but with more rigor and connected to what the text says. So I don't just like living constitutionalism, loosey-goosey, you can do whatever you want. There is an alternative that's a little bit more principled than that. And it's what we've alluded to on multiple occasions. The other alternative is um, precedent. Um, I'm stare decisis. That's what American constitutional law is. And I'm saying, yeah, the problem with that is, and many times in our history, the precedents have been really bad ones, like um, Jim Crow um, and Plessy versus Ferguson, like the Lochner era. Um, um, and um, um, for for. Much of American history, judges actually didn't take some of the rights seriously, but in the Warren Court did. So I think net-net, actually, no method is going to be perfect. It's not going to always guarantee that, that the things that I like are going to win, but basically give me originalism over looseiness, goosiness, and give me originalism over just precedent worship um, uh, above all. Um, in general, I think... The American Constitution has reflected the, the judgment of we the people at our best moments and we the people at our best moments in the Bill of Rights, in the Reconstruction Amendments, in Women's Suffrage Amendment, um, in the 1960s Amendments. We the people have actually been better than the judges. So that's why I'm with John Marshall and Abraham Lincoln and uh, uh, Hugo Black in being a liberal originalist. Do you think this gets at why uh, there's, there's been a lot of demonization of the Federalist Society lately? Um, and I wonder if you think the reason Democrats have not been able to answer the, the, the machinery of the Federalist Society, have not been able to go toe-to-toe to, to, toe -to -toe with them uh, in terms of organization and efficiency, has something to do with um, n not having a singular constitutional theory around which they are all organized. Do you think that's accurate? There was and is an important organization that tries to has tried to offer a principled liberal 
vision of originalism. It's called the Constitutional Accountability Center. It was founded by Doug Kendall, now the late Doug Kendall, a very great man. Um, so it's just you haven't heard about it as much, and I think you'll you'll be hearing about it um, more in the days to come because liberals are going to have to um, uh, uh, use the tools of originalism because it's a self-understood uh, uh, originalist court. I want to say one or two words about the Federalist Society, and then um, relatedly one or two words about why I'm glad, actually, that the Federalist Society um, has principles and their originalist principles, because that means they have principles, and that means sometimes we can appeal to them and win uh, on principles. So first, oh, Federal Society was, uh, did pick these justices. They're, not, they're nominally Trump-picked, but they're in fact groomed by the Federal Society. And I say thank God for that, because if he had picked people on his own, we would have had thugs on the court like Rudy Giuliani and <laughs> Sidney Powell and, you know, um, this, this cast of lunatics, okay? Um, I'm, you're, you're laughing, but, but Trump know. knows I, nothing about law. I'm laughing because law. I'm waiting for a case decided by Sidney Powell titled Kraken v. Something. <laughs> yes, yes. So um, thank God that he didn't pick his cronies. He was forced to pick folks who actually had a principled jurisprudence. And yes, they're Trump um, appointees, but they're not Trump allies. Um, And on the lower federal courts, I'm so proud of Trump appointees, FedSoc affiliates, like my student, Stephanus Bibas, who when they got ridiculous election lawsuits um, saying um, that there was fraud, said, no, there actually isn't, because they stood up and were principled jurists. Um, so uh, I'm really happy that the Federalist Society basically took over informally the job of picking the judges in the Trump um, era, because if they hadn't done it, Trump would have done it himself or his, his cronies, you know, Jared Kushner and, and Don Jr. and Eric and Ivanka and, and you know, that, 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 that great um, consortium of legal minds, not Okay, because their loyalty is just to Trump and not to their fidelity isn't to the Constitution. So um, um, I think I won't always agree with them, but I think Amy Coney Barrett has principles and Brett Kavanaugh has principles. I've never met um, um, Neil Gorsuch, but I'm uh, but he's he writes opinions that um, are based on ideas and not allegiance to personal fidelity to an overlord. And thank God for that. Now, that may segue into, um, at some point, um, conversation. going forward, oh, the big issue going forward is going to be about election laws in 2024. And I'm really glad that um, we have an originalist court because on originalist grounds, I actually think we liberals have a good chance of winning on some of the most important election law issues that are going to be um, in part um, uh, that, that may well actually um, decide the 2024 election. I want to dig into that case, and we'll we'll do it in just a moment when we flip over to Politicology Plus. But before we do, I have one last one last topic for the for this main show that I would like you to touch on, which is this now now the 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 buzzword du jour is illegitimate. 
and this is the word that I see bandied about all over Twitter, all over news media, especially by uh, liberals ever since the Dobbs decision and the subsequent decisions, which we've talked about overturning New York's gun law. Um, and one of the things that is so alarming to me is is, is this word. And, and Jamie Harrison, uh, chairman of the DNC, used it. He said, it isn't up to you, Lindsey Graham, this illegitimate court or a bunch of state elected court official to decide what happens to a woman's body, right? Biden says, this is an extreme and dangerous path this court is taking us on, which is unusual for a president to weigh in on a Supreme Court decision. It's becoming more common nowadays, but this has traditionally been a thing presidents don't do. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, who is a former Harvard law professor, says they've burned whatever legitimacy they may still have had. They just took the last of it and set a torch to it. Um, and, and, And the list goes on and on, and you know what I'm talking about. And so I can understand perfectly well being outraged, being scared, being uh, having all of the emotions feel because literally rights have been taken away from you that you had today that you don't, I can understand all of this, but when you say the word illegitimate, it scares me because I think that takes us, if you follow it logically to a very, very dangerous place. And so I wonder how you're, how you're reading that backlash not just by the politicos, but especially by the electeds and, for example, a Harvard law professor who really know better and know that the definition of legitimate and illegitimate it, it has has enormous consequences for a layperson who is reading that. Oh, I so agree with you. And it's the perfect storm. And I want to go through how is the perfect storm. And um and this has consequence because if it is illegitimate, well, then people should be storming the Capitol. Okay. And I'm using that um, analogy advisedly because I think we're seeing a lot of um, stop the steal rhetoric on both sides. And on both sides, I think it's unwarranted. So let's just identify all the factors that are going on. Um, and one is Twitter, which um, empowers extremists and, and name callers um, who don't actually have arguments but are very clever at 140 or 280 characters even though they don't know what they're talking about. Um, but they can find each other. And that's why I'm not on Twitter. Um, I'm trying to make reasoned arguments on podcasts like this one. Um, I've got my own um, in articles and, and, and books. Um, but um, Twitter has sapped some of that and it's empowered extremists on right and left, and extremists who don't know what they're talking about. You know, birtherism, for example, you know, QAnon, um, for example, stop the steal. That's on the right, but there are comparable phenomena on the left. Um, and I'll give you one example that I'll come back to, that the Garland seat was stolen. It's the same word, stop the steal, but it wasn't. And if the Garland seat is stolen, then the court is quasi-illegitimate. Um, just like if the election is stolen, then you should storm the Capitol. But neither of those things are true. But t- Twitter is part of it. I'll come back to the Garland thing in, in a moment. Twitter also um, has um, detoured around um, uh, institutions that um, uh, uh, filtered um, and uh, moderated. Um, and so now everyone's a constitutional expert or an expert on this or that or the other thing, even if they don't know what they're talking about. Um, and, and we don't have Walter Cronkite telling us that's the way it is. Um, or 
um, the New York Times um, um, or the, the, the Wall Street Journal, for, for, for that matter. So our um, or um, uh, Ivy Ivy law law professors who have actually studied the Constitution every day for thirty years. Um, so um, it's a a, a, um, a a crisis of of ep, um, epistemic crisis of of, of of expertise and and knowledge. So, so that's part of what's going on. Um, uh, and uh, since I mentioned uh, Garland, you see, and part of it is also just widespread um, ignorance. So um, uh, the Garland nomination, the Garland seat wasn't stolen, you see. Um, and I hate it when people say it was stolen because they don't. People don't know anything about the Constitution. The Constitution doesn't give a president a right to um, uh, uh, put someone on the court. You have to get through the Senate, and when the Senate's controlled by the other party, that's that's not a slam dunk. Um, and actually, I, I love Merrick Garland personally. We're we're very close friends. Um, I wanted him confirmed, but the Senate was controlled by the other party, and and so even if he didn't. He, there's no right to a hearing, but even if he got a hearing, he wasn't going to get a, probably a, a positive floor uh, committee vote. And if he got a positive committee floor vote, he wasn't going to get a positive floor um, um, uh, a committee vote. He wasn't going to get a vote on, on the floor. And even if, if um, that, um, he'd gotten to the floor, he needed 60 votes, actually, because the filibuster was still in place and he didn't have 60 votes. So, so it wasn't stolen. It's just the Democrats lost the Senate in 2014, and that was going to have consequences now. Had Hillary won, we would have gotten the seat because we would have carried the Senate, and and we were so so the, the, the idea that was stolen is only afterwards because we lost. You, you see, so um, but but if you think um, that seat was stolen, okay, and then you think, oh, these justices they lied to us. They said it was settled law in their confirmation hearings, but people don't understand. It's like the Princess Bride. I do not think that means what you think it means. Settled law doesn't mean that <laughs> you know. That is it, my it, all-time it, favorite movie. It, yeah. Okay, good. I'm glad I, I, you know. Um, but it, it doesn't mean that it, it uh, that you're going to follow it if you think it's egregiously wrong and you're an originalist. But people don't understand originalism. They don't understand actually. You know these these subterranean um, um, tectonic um, theories that that have implications. So they think. Oh, these guys lied to us. No, they didn't. And I, I've always been telling you th this, but, but the, the press won't always give me the opportunity to be on camera or to write the op-ed. And, and, um, and I've had a really good track record on all this stuff. The, maybe the thing I didn't predict quite was Clarence Thomas, um, uh, but, but everything else has been what I thought it would be. And they say, oh, but Professor, you said you were liberal and you were for Kavanaugh. Yes, because my party lost, and the other people on the list, I looked down them, I thought they would be less moderate than Kavanaugh, because they didn't clerk for Anthony Kennedy, and they didn't believe Obergefell is right. The question to ask them isn't, is um, Roe settled law? The question to ask them is, is it correct law? Do you actually agree with it? Because if you agree with it, you don't need to hide behind stare decisis. Okay? But our appointments process is deeply broken, because... That question doesn't get asked, or if it does, it won't get answered. And, and that's because the appointments process, and I've actually testified in Senate confirmation hearings for Supreme Court justices, is all about face time for the senators. It's, it's bad, okay? So it's part of this, you know, so, so it's deeply dysfunctional. Um, and now we're moving more toward politics. Um, uh, the Democratic Party, I'm a Democrat. I really want us to win pretty desperately going forward. But gas prices are high, so we want to try to change the subject. Let's change it to Vivaldi. Let's change it to Dobbs. Let's change it to Guns and, and, and Bruin. Because uh, if we're way behind, we just got to change the subject somehow, and let's pump up the volume. And let's say all your other rights are at stake, even if they're not, 
you know, even if at most it's Clarence Thomas who's saying that. Now, I'm saying vote. Please vote. I beg you to vote. Um, I'm a fellow Democrat, um, but I'm not going to tell you you should vote because Griswold is um, um, in play and at stake, because I don't think it is, or sodomy uh, laws, or interracial marriage, or even same-sex marriage. Here's what is at stake. In 2024, if the Republicans, not 2022, but in 2024, if the Republicans carry the House, the Senate, the presidency, there'll be a national abortion ban. Um, and that's a pretty big thing. Um, but even if that weren't so, you have to vote because people died for this, because it's important. I, you, you know, uh, um, um, so, so the politicians are demagoguing it a bit. Um, and um, um, ordinary people, you know, don't quite understand settled law doesn't mean what settled law means. Um, and um, uh, um, the, um, the Garland seat really wasn't stolen, but people are, you know, taught it was. And, and, and also, everyone's bloviating, and not everyone is an expert. So, um, uh, and some of the people who actually even are at f- fancy places, I won't name names, but they're, they're not actually at their best right now. And I won't, you know, so uh, um, I've tried to give you sane and sober analysis of the thing. You'll have to decide for yourself and you'll have to look at my track record. So here's why, you know, because I think people disagree. Here's why you should listen to me. Because I actually have been cited more times by the Supreme Court than anyone else under 65. And I'm cited by the liberals and the conservatives. I clerked for Steve Breyer and I'm cited in Dobbs and in Bruin. And because here's another reason. My legal analysis isn't the same as my personal political views. I'm pro-choice and anti-gun, but I'm cited correctly by the Supreme Court for a pro-gun, anti-choice um, uh, opinions. Be, um, but, but if you're a doctor, you, you don't want someone to have cancer, but you just analyze the situation and say, I've looked at the slides and this is cancerous, okay? I'm a law professor. I look at the text. I look at the history. I say, here's actually what they mean, and they don't always mean what I want them to mean. So here's why, you know, uh, you should listen to me because you have choices, audience members. I'm on a serious podcast with Ron. You know he's serious um, because... Um, the court, the justices take me seriously across the spectrum, with, um, uh, both liberals and conservatives, because I'm trying to tell you stuff that's not my personal view, but my um, um, uh, legal view. And sometimes I'm agreeing with the conservatives, and sometimes I'm agreeing with the liberals, you see. Oh, and uh, on the 2024 election coming up, it's going to be really important to have people on the left who have credibility with judges on the right, because there's a movement underfoot that's every bit as devious as John Eastman's stuff, a clever legal move to basically legally steal the 2024 election before it's even happened yet. It parades under the banner of independent state legislature theory, and I think it's deeply wrong, but I'm going to have to persuade originalist justices that it's wrong on originalist grounds. I'll also uh, try to persuade precedent-leaning justices that it's wrong on precedent-leaning grounds. But but none of that will mean anything if it's all just politics, if it's all bullshit, if, if, if everything is illegitimate. Well, if so, you've just licensed six justices um, to do whatever they want because, hey, you know, it's just all politics. That is a perfect segue over to our plus segment. But before we do that, 
uh, since you're not on Twitter, where can everybody follow your work uh, best? I have a weekly podcast. It's absolutely free. It's with my dear friend, Dr. Andy Lipka. He's a retired ophthalmologist who's absolutely brilliant on everything. He basically, in effect, represents the audience, and he's always holding my feet to the fire and asking me hard questions. The podcast is called America's Constitution. It's a pun on America. It's it's free, and you can find it everywhere, Spot, uh, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, Google, Podbean. Um, we have an associated website at akilamar.com, and um, sometimes we have really great guests on the show, about a third of the time, people like Bob Woodward, Gary Hart, um, with whom I actually am a co-author on stuff on filibuster reform, Linda Greenhouse, Neil Katyal. We have people on the right like Ed Whalen from National Review, people on the left, like Linda Greenhouse from the New York Times. So um, Nadine Strassen, former head of the ACLU. Um, so we bring interesting people on. Um, with guns, we brought on Adam Winkler, who wrote a book called Gunfight. That's very well respected by the gun controllers and the gun enthusiasts. So the weekly podcast is called America's Constitution, and thank you for letting me plug it. One final thing, if I could... What I care most about are my books. You don't have to buy them, but I want you to read them. Um, and they're big and they're epic and they try to tell the story of the American Constitution and they'll make you smarter. Um, but uh, fair warning, um, they're long. Um, but um, you'll, you'll learn a lot. Akhil Amar, thank you so much for taking the time. And I hope you'll come back on Politicology. Yeah, I hope you'll invite me. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. Podcasts tend to grow based on word of mouth. So if you want to help more people discover politicology, you can share this episode or one of your favorites with your friend group, your family, or your colleagues. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we'd love to hear from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode. <laughs>